So there's no easy answer, but it was so clear to me that social isolation was a far greater risk for my kid than COVID was for my kid. And, um, and I think there are also fairly low risk ways that kids can interact pretty freely in a low risk way. I'm Bridget Garsh, co-founder of Neighbor Schools and your host for Work Like a Mother, a podcast dedicated to real conversations with incredible women juggling work, life, and motherhood. Today, I'm so excited to sit down with Julia Marcus, an associate professor at Harvard Medical School and an epidemiologist focused on HIV prevention, who's become a frequent contributor to The Atlantic writing about the parallels between HIV and COVID. One day over the summer, I was explaining to Hudson that I needed to call my friend Melissa. And he looked at me with his big brown eyes and earnestly asked, who are my friends, mama? My heart nearly burst into a million tiny pieces. Between living with my high-risk in-laws and giving birth to Brooks in the early spring, I had been so focused on how to keep my family safe from the physical impact of COVID that I hadn't really stopped to consider how it was affecting other areas of our lives. So it was really refreshing to talk to Julia about considering my family's mental and social health throughout the pandemic. And she validated that this is hard, but we're going to figure out ways to get through it. At the start of the pandemic, Julia never could have foreseen her current reality. But after one of her tweets caught some attention, she was asked to write an article for The Atlantic about the risk of COVID from a population health perspective. Six articles later, Julia has become a voice of reason, helping us understand the connection between the AIDS epidemic and the COVID pandemic and the need to balance not only the risks of our physical health, but also our mental and social health. And she lives this every day as she weighs the risks of sending her six-year-old to hybrid school and her three-year-old to daycare while she and her husband both work full-time. Though Julia is all too aware of the challenges that we face, she has great advice as we grapple with the seemingly impossible decisions each day. Thank you so much for joining us. We're absolutely thrilled to have you. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I thought it would be really interesting to hear a little bit about how busy you've been in the last six months. Um, You know, six articles in The Atlantic is a lot. You have a very active Twitter presence. Tell us a little bit about how your research has felt so relevant during COVID in this particular time? Yeah, it's funny because I'm actually, I'm an HIV prevention researcher. And so um, in some ways, my research is quite unrelated to COVID. Um, But I was kind of watching the pandemic start to unfold as, um, you know, a citizen and an epidemiologist but also through the lens of what I know about HIV and and our response to that epidemic. And I started to just um, 
casually tweet to my small following on Twitter, which I had just joined pretty recently. I've never been on social media before this. Um, and started sharing some thoughts about what I saw as parallels between HIV and COVID, particularly around shaming and blaming of individuals for their supposed, supposedly risky behavior and um, just some themes that are really prevalent in HIV I was starting to see come up now. And an Atlantic editor wrote to me at one point about a particular tweet in early May and asked if I would write a piece about it. And he gave me like 24 hours <laughs> um, about, about that long. And we had no childcare at the time. And so it was like a total scramble. And um, I just felt like, all right, this is a big opportunity to share my thoughts with a much bigger audience. And I had no idea it was going to turn into another five pieces after that. And like a lot of new Twitter followers and media um, engagements. And, you know, it's just been a real shift in my existence in the world. Well, I'm still trying to do HIV research, but obviously totally distracted. <laughs> I'm sure. And you also have your children that you're juggling as well. How do you, how do you juggle all of it? Um, I tend to fail a little bit at everything. <laughs> That's how it feels. Um, I think our lowest points as a household during the pandemic have been, I mean, predictably have been the times when we've had no childcare help at all and have mm -hmm. been, um, my husband and I both work full time. And so for several months, we were just switching off with the kids while trying to maintain full-time jobs. And that was incredibly stressful and resulted in like being bad parents and bad employees, you know, <laughs> um, and, or at least feeling that way, you know, and even though our expectations obviously should be so much lower right now, I think it's, hard to shift those. And it's also, I, I think, because there was this additional, it's almost like I, I had a new job on top of my regular job and then like half the time to do it. And um, now things are a bit easier, or a lot easier actually, because we do have some childcare, even though it's a bit of a patchwork. Um, it's still much better than it was. And we'll see how long that lasts. Um, things are, rates are increasing here. So things may shut back down again, but um, yeah, it's, I mean, it's a, an enormous challenge and I, I think schools being closed or, or at least partly closed right now is just a total crisis for so many working parents. And you said you have a three and a six-year-old? Yep. And the three-year-old is in daycare and the six-year-old is in a hybrid school situation with like a Tetris puzzle of childcare all around it. <laughs> um, that probably creates a lot more social context than he would have had if he'd just been in the classroom all week, but that's maybe a different conversation. <laughs> hmm, that's interesting. Say more about that. Well, I just, you know, the hybrid model, um, it, there's not a whole lot of evidence one way or the other, whether it's better than fully in-person learning for, let's say, the littlest kids, you know, like K, K through five, um, kids who are in one classroom all week. And the whole idea is there's not enough space to have the kids physically distanced. And so they have to switch off in the classroom. 
but the models that have looked at it haven't accounted for what happens outside of the classroom. And of course, the kids have to be somewhere, right? And in our case, our kid is now in childcare part of the time at the school doing remote learning in the childcare, which is like mind bending. Um, and then we have to help childcare help for him doing the remote learning. So it, and we end up with um, additional contacts that he would not have had. And um, so I don't know. I mean, it's kind of a toss up to me whether that's better than having a few more kids in a small, small uh, classroom, but at least one consistent group throughout the whole week. It reminds me as you're talking about this and sort of the, the exposure and the contacts that, you know, children have with one another of a piece that you wrote about, um, you know, sort of the unrealistic nature of completely being socially distanced. And what advice do you have for parents, especially parents with young children who are grappling with how do I continue to have socialization for my child so that they're not completely isolated, which feels scary and overwhelming and not, not knowing what the long-term impacts of that could be either. Yeah. I mean, I could, I could talk about this from like a population health perspective, but even just like as a mom, um, our six-year-old really struggled in March and April and, the three-year-old was totally fine. She was perfectly happy, unfazed, you know, didn't care at all. She was happy to hang out at home. But our six-year-old with, without having social contact with other kids and also even just other adults, like our friends or extended family, um, he really regressed. He seemed really sad. He, he was like despondent and it's pretty heartbreaking to see what looked like depression in a six-year-old um, just over a, a pretty short period of time. And he has perked up a lot now being back in school, although I think there's still very little interaction in the classroom because the kids are just spaced out and they're masked, but at least in the childcare setting, they're playing outdoors a lot together. And I think that's huge. It's essential for him. And so I think it's about balancing all of these things. There's no easy answer, but it was so clear to me that social isolation was a far greater risk for my kid than COVID was for my kid. And, um, and I think there are also fairly low risk ways that kids can interact and um, particularly outdoors. And, you know, I'm glad to see more playgrounds opening up and parks. I think it's been um, a real mistake to close those spaces where kids can interact pretty freely in a low risk way. Um, and, that, and by closing outdoor spaces, we, we may inadvertently push people inside. So people have play dates where it's actually higher risk. So I, I don't think there's any easy answer for any family. And, uh, you know, it's always going to depend on the vulnerability of the people in the household and how each kid is impacted by either socializing or not. Um, but I think there are fairly low risk ways for us to interact with each other and that we should prioritize those as much as we can. You know, the my guiding principle as an epidemiologist even though I'm an infectious disease epidemiologist, or that's how I kind of think of myself and my work, um, my guiding principle is the World Health Organization's definition of health, which is explicitly that it's more than the absence of disease. 
that it's about physical, social, and mental well-being. And I think in some ways our response to COVID, because it is acute and scary, um, has really um, narrowly focused on infection prevention at the expense of these other aspects of health. Not always at the expense of other aspects of health, but in some cases I think it has been, and for some people more than others. Um, so I think uh, that helps me both in my own household, but also just in my thinking, you know, sort of professionally about this pandemic and, and writing. During COVID and the work that you do as an epidemiologist, like how does that inform your, your motherhood at this moment in time? And then also, has there, have there been any connections uh, before this? Mm. Yeah, I mean, I think in general, I tend to think very big picture about risk and health. And I think that is helpful for parenting, especially during COVID, um, which isn't to say that I don't still have, um, you know, uh, kind of myopic responses to my kids and their potential risks. But, um, but I think because I'm, I'm generally right now, I'm thinking so big picture about how do we maximize population health, not just COVID prevention, but population health and well-being. I think that helps me think through what are the risks that are worth taking to make sure that my kids stay healthy and especially seeing the effects of isolation on my kid and understanding that actually taking on some risk of infection is for our household well worth, um, you know, the benefits in terms of well-being and mental health. And prior to COVID, you moved across the country to Boston to start a new job? It was when I was pregnant with our um, second kid, and I was moving here for a faculty job, and I was six or seven months pregnant and had a toddler. Um, so that was its own challenge, but thankfully not in a pandemic. <laughs> One wrinkle removed, but what was that? <laughs> that sounds challenging in and of itself. Um, how, how was that experience? Um, that was, uh, I mean, it was kind of horrible. <laughs> um, that first year moving to a place where we didn't know anyone in the dead of winter for me to start a new faculty job with, um, you know, a two and a half year old who was like having tantrums and a newborn who would only sleep physically on top of my body, you know, just all of that. It was kind of a disaster. Um, and my husband had a very challenging fellowship at the time. Um, so yeah, I'm, I've tried to like block that year out, but for anybody listening, whose kids are those ages, it gets so much easier. And of course the challenges change over time, but just the amount of physical need that very, very small children have is so intense and just takes so much um, out of us. And of course they're amazing. And I, I mean, I love babies and I love my kids and I wouldn't give up that time for anything. And there were some really magical moments when they were babies that, um, you know, I, you can't get back, but um, I found it to be a really, a, a real challenge. And now like, 
with a three and a six year old, it's still, they still have a lot of needs, but it's not, um, it's not that same intensity. It's a lot easier. What helped you get through that difficult, challenging year? Were there any sources of particular strength, either external or internal that you tapped into? Such a good question. (laughs) Um, I think I just kind of flailed my way through, honestly. I, I don't even know. I was so sleep deprived. I think I, my memory of it is hazy. And it, I think I probably cried a lot. I, <laughs> I don't know. I should have some really great answer for people, but I don't. I don't. You just kind of get through it because you have to, you know, and then it gets better. Yeah. So much of... <laughs> it's so much of putting one foot in front of the other and just you keep going because you don't, you don't have a choice and you have to make it work and you, you figure out a way to, to do it, to do it. That's right. And actually I will say, I think I've, I've had several women friends who have been in similar stages as me um, with my first pregnancy and then my second one. And um, just like, having them as a reality check, sanity check, I don't know, just people to commiserate with. That was essential. And I feel this both professionally and personally that peer support in these, not just friendship, but like peer support around these challenges Mm -hmm. is so key. And so I think I would say that's probably what my main source of strength was besides like my husband and, um, any other family help we had at the time, I think just having other women who had, who were going through something similar was huge. So what did that maternity leave look like? Um, well, I had her several weeks after Trump was elected and it was like zero degrees here. And, um, And the older, my older kid refused to acknowledge the baby's existence. And my husband was working seven days a week. That was a dark time. (laughs) It sounds like it. It sounds like it would be really hard. I know for myself personally, I feel like so many of the stories of maternity leave are around I don't know, this special time and this wonderful bonding with your baby. And in many ways, it's painted as like rainbows and and butterflies. And there's a lot of challenges to that time for people or there can be as well. And I personally didn't feel like a lot of people were were open about about how tough it can be. And it's it's reality. So I appreciate you sharing that because I think it is really helpful for people to to hear it, that it's hard. It can be really hard. Totally. It's also, I will say it was, there were things about it that were so much easier the second time. Um, Like it just, I, I had so much less anxiety. I wasn't worried about, you know, figuring out how to keep the baby alive. You know, just, I was able to enjoy the baby so much more the challenges were were more around um, the older kid and our relationship changing overnight, and he really didn't take well to the having a new baby in the house, and um, that and he was really angry. Um, so that 
that was hard. But the actual experience of like, um, the, of like baby bonding and all of that, it just was much easier um, having done it the first time. And how are they now? So they didn't necessarily love one another at the beginning. Are they friends now? They are. They're totally friends. I think um, the older one finally acknowledged the little one about six months <laughs> after I had her. Um, and he still didn't like her much. He was still kind of suspicious. But um, I think eventually, yeah, they warmed up to each other. And now they get along quite well. I mean, they bicker too, as kids do. But um, they're pretty sweet with each other. And, uh, yeah, that all sorted itself out. That gives me hope. We're having the opposite experience, I think, of you, where um, my oldest was pretty indifferent to the baby being around and just wasn't really interested, but also didn't have strong feelings in either direction. And now that the baby is six months and starting to get a little more mobile and grabbing maybe a toy that belongs to his older brother or because of COVID, my older son's hair is really long. So if he gets close, the baby has grabbed his hair a few times. And so there's this sense of tension um, and frustration brewing and growing. Uh, So it seems like it may have gotten resolved a little bit on by the time six months. Ours feels like it's just starting. Well, by resolved after six months, I would say he acknowledged that she existed at that point. <laughs> but all the stuff you're talking about definitely continued. Like, you know, I think it actually got m- more challenging when she started taking away his stuff without realizing, you know, what she was doing. Right. Um, but then eventually that passes too. How has your motherhood influenced your work? Mm. Yeah, I think especially when um, when I first became a mom, it really shifted my perspective on the world and my identity. And I think work felt so much less important. Um, I just became much more focused on my family and my kid. Um, and I think, again, with having the second one, it just, I, I think I was just not particularly invested in my professional self while I had babies. Um, I just was giving so much to them. Um, and then gradually, I think when the littler one, maybe around when she turned two, um, I feel like I was, it was almost like coming out of a, like waking up from a dream or something like, and trying to figure out who am I now? I'm not the same person that I was when I, you know, went to sleep or whatever, you know, when I, when I went into this like kind of dream state, you know, baby land and trying to figure out what is my identity now? And like, what are, and the same hobbies that I had and the same things that I really cared about that were important to me then, it may not be those same things now. It's really, it's kind of a disorienting moment that I think I don't hear people talk about a lot. So I don't know if it's like universal or, 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 or if it's common. Um, or if it's just me, but it really felt like there was a reorientation or something that happened or an awakening. And I, and I think then it was like, oh, okay, now I can focus more on my work, but also try to figure out like, what are the other 
parts of me that um, I kind of set aside for years that I want to bring back or not. And if I'm not going to, what is going to fill those, fill that space? What a powerful thing to mention, this idea of redefining your identity as a mother, but also as a working mother. And I couldn't agree with you more just on a personal level. I don't know if that is a phenomenon or something that uh, a lot of people experience. I think you're right that it doesn't get talked about all that often, but it listening to you talk about it was really hitting me. And, and I was nodding along and thinking, wow, you're so right. It's, and it's so abrupt too, especially with the first, because you go from being, you're, you're this one person and yes, you're a pregnant version of yourself, but that has really a minimal impact on who you are as your core identity. And then all of a sudden, poof, it changes. Yeah, that's, it feels to me that's like, that's the biggest shift is like from you as a person to you with this other human being that you've just generated and how, and like shifting your identity in that time is just that, that, that I think is the biggest, but then there's also the second shift that happens when like you start to come back to yourself and then you have to figure out who you are. You know, and that I think I didn't really have like a a manual for how to do that. (laughs) Just felt like what's happening to me and how do I, you know, now suddenly I have more breathing room and I don't feel as physically uh, in need. And, you know, there just is more space to be like thinking and caring about other things and um, and it's, it's great. It's a wonderful thing, but also a bit disorienting when you can't quite remember what were the things that made you, you before, and also have to accept that maybe it's different things that make you, you now, you know, thank you so much for making time to, to chat today. I have one final question for you. And that is what advice would you give to your pre mom self? Hmm. Great question. I think something I only really registered after having my second kid is that we really don't have that much control. Like we think we do. And that's why that first time around, it's like, well, how do we do the sleep stuff and the the food and what am I doing wrong and how can I do it better? And, you know, I obsessed about all that stuff. And then I had a second kid and we did all the same things and she was completely different and behaved in totally different ways from the first one. And I was like, oh, they're actually their own human being and I don't have control. I'm just here to generally provide a safe, loving environment and make sure they're fed and clothed. But I can't, I can't make them into people that they're not, even babies that they're not. Mm-hmm. And so that was really liberating. And I wish that I had known that, even though I don't know if there's a way to internalize it before you become a mom or even a, a second time mom for me, that is what it took. But um, yeah, it's just, uh, they're their own people. We're just here to like gently guide them and keep them safe. But mm-hmm. um, we, we don't really have control. And that, that should free us, I think, from so much of the anxiety that can come up around parenting, you know? Well, thank you. I feel like I could talk to you so much more. <laughs> Thank you for having me. It was really fun talking with you. Thank you. 
Bye. Bye. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Bridget Garsh, and this is Work Like a Mother. I'm excited to share another amazing working mama story with you next week. But before I go, I have a quick favor to ask. Please help us spread the word by giving us five stars on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way for more working moms to discover our show. Thanks, and have a great week.